after Leonard's been up here, I have to do some housekeeping, so give me just a moment. So I want to welcome all of you. It's great to be here this morning and be here with you. I owe you guys something that I haven't done in a long time. I owe you a Bible reading challenge update. Several weeks ago, I was going to give you a Bible reading challenge update, and I forgot to look up the number, so we just left it blank. But this week, I am proud to say that I did remember to look up the number, and we as a congregation have read collectively 1,054 books of the Bible year to date. So why do we have a Bible reading challenge? Well, we have a Bible reading challenge because we very strongly believe in the power of God's Word. And we want to encourage everybody to make reading their Bible, being immersed in God's Word, a part of their routine, a part of their habit, something that they do each and every day. So please continue to read, continue to report your results, and we'll continue to give you updates whenever I remember to look up the number and give you those updates. So we believe that the word of God is powerful. We also believe that prayer is powerful and effective. And we would love to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you have a prayer request that you'd like to bring to the attention of this congregation or just to its eldership, we'd like to know about that so we can honor that request. We'd encourage you to reach in front of you and pull out one of our green prayer request cards. This is a communication card. If you'll fill out your prayer request on this card and then drop it in one of our collection boxes, we'll honor your request. There are several hundred people who are on an email list who will be waiting to get these prayer requests, and they will be praying for you. So please take advantage of that and drop your requests in the boxes. There's one box through these double doors up here at the front. There are two more collection boxes at the very back of the auditorium. We believe in the power of prayer. We also want you to know that we believe in the power of baptism. We are a baptizing church. We believe that it's in baptism that God works powerfully in our lives, that we join with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. We're clothed with Christ. We emerge out of the water as new creatures new creations ready to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you haven't been baptized, we really should have a conversation about that. And to have that conversation, all you need to do is take that same green card, turn it over to the back, fill out your contact information, check the box that says you'd like to talk to someone about baptism, drop that in one of those collection boxes, and either I or one of the elders will contact you Monday morning And we'll start that conversation. We believe in the power of baptism. And finally, I want you to know that we believe in the power of the church. We believe in the power of the church universal and the power of the church local. We believe that every Christian should be a member of a local church. Because there is power in the church. We're able to do things together that we could never do alone. So if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you would like to be identified as a member of this church, we'd really encourage you to take that same green card, fill out your contact information, check the box about church membership, drop it in the box, and again, either I or one of the elders will contact you right away and we'll have a conversation about that as well. The church is powerful. Well, today we're going to continue our sermon series from the book of Romans. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. Today we'll be in Romans chapter 12, and this would be a great time to grab your Bibles and turn there. Romans chapter 12. 
And as we get ready to focus on just a couple of verses out of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we're going to talk about transformation. And as we talk about transformation and focus on just a couple of verses, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the big picture, the big picture of this remarkable letter that Paul wrote. See, throughout Romans, Paul is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this letter, Paul makes a persuasive and very passionate defense of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't just focus on the historical reality of the gospel. He also focuses on the mighty power of the gospel. Paul boldly proclaims that because of Jesus' death, because of his burial, and especially because of his resurrection, all mankind has access to salvation if they will respond to the reality of the gospel in loving obedience to their God. And that's why early in this letter, Paul boldly says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And since we're gathered here together this morning as a living testimony to the power of that gospel, I want us to join with Paul in affirming our faith in the gospel, our faith in the saving power of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me these words that Paul wrote so long ago. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, hopefully you remember that we talked about a couple of words that maybe aren't in our ordinary vocabulary. We talked about theology and we talked about doxology. And if you were here, maybe you remember that we took a quiz at the beginning of that sermon. I want to review that quiz to see if you really learned anything a couple of weeks ago. So I want you just to shout out the answers. We ask, what is theology? And the correct answer is the study of God. Very good. The correct answer is the study of God. What was the other correct answer? A word that preachers use to try to make themselves sound smart, right? That's the the other correct answer. And doxology is, what's the correct answer? Doxology is an expression of praise to God. That's the correct answer. And once more, the other correct answer was, yeah, yet another word that preachers use to try to make themselves sound smart. I don't think it worked, but we do try. So we talked about theology and doxology, the study of God and an expression of praise to God. And two weeks ago, we pointed out that Paul spent most of the first 11 chapters of, of, of Romans on theology. Paul spent his time helping us understand who God is and helping us understand what God has done for us. And then we saw as chapter 11 came to a close, we saw Paul break out in doxology, in worship, in praise. As chapter 11 came to a close, Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond reaching out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. See, Paul turned to doxology. He moved from theology to doxology. He moved from who God is and what God has done to praising God and worshiping God. Praising God and worshiping God because of who he is and because of what he has done. And a couple of weeks ago, we said that doxology naturally flows out of theology. It just doesn't make any sense to learn who God is and to understand what he has done for us without then being moved to worship, being moved to praise. So I want you to think of theology and doxology as the first two legs of a three-legged stool. See, Paul tells us that we need to truly understand who God is. And we need to really grasp what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. See, theology is the first leg of that three-legged stool, but something's obviously missing. So next, Paul shows us that we need to respond to our true understanding with true worship. We worship God because of who he is and because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. So doxology is the second leg of that three-legged stool, but... Something is still missing. And what's missing is our transformation. When we learn who God is and when we understand what he has done for us through Jesus Christ, we can't help but worship him, but we also can't help but change who we are. The reality of God and the reality of what he's done for us changes who we are. We can't remain the same. So the final leg of the three-legged stool is transformed living. Transformed living in light of who God is and in light of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Transformed living. So here in Romans, over the next several chapters, Paul is going to convince us That if we know all about God and if we're devoted to praising God, if we have our theology and our doxology correctly aligned, but our lives aren't transformed by God, then we're just to borrow Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're just resounding gongs and clanging cymbals. If we have our theology and our doxology correctly aligned, but our lives haven't been transformed, we're just two-legged stools unbalanced, easily tipped over, not able to support what we say we believe. So listen to what Paul says as he introduces the third leg of the stool, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, let me stop there and just paraphrase, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, because you now know who God is and because you now understand what he has done for you through Jesus Christ, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what's Paul saying? You know, this is one of those passages that's really easy for us just to kind of skim over. It's familiar. We've heard it a lot. It's easy for us to just skim over it without really grasping the level of commitment, the amount of transformation that Paul is calling us to. So this morning, we want to slow down and see if we can't get a clearer understanding of where Paul is going to take us in these last chapters of Romans. And to understand where Paul is going to take us, we need to have at least a basic understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices. And we need to have that basic understanding of those sacrifices. Because when Paul tells us that we should, in light of God's mercies, in view of what God has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what Paul tells us that we must do is we must be a sacrifice, and he's thinking about a specific sacrifice. When he says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, he has a specific type of sacrifice in mind. Paul isn't talking about a grain offering, which was one Old Testament sacrifice. And in a grain offering, a portion of the grain from the harvest is given to God, and then the rest of the grain was eaten by the priests. And Paul isn't referencing the peace offering. In the peace offering, the fat and the kidneys and the liver from an animal were given to God. And it was burnt up, it was sacrificed on the altar, but everything else from the animal was left for the participants to eat. And we know that Paul isn't talking about the sin offering, because we know that Jesus offered himself as our sin offering. And we're sure that Paul doesn't have in mind a trespass offering, That was a sacrifice made for atonement for unintentional sins. And it was like the peace offering in that the fat portions and the kidneys and the liver were burnt on the altar and offered to God, but the rest of the ram was eaten, eaten inside the court of the tabernacle. But what Paul is talking about, he's talking about the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a voluntary act of worship. It expressed devotion and commitment to God. Paul's talking about offering ourselves as that kind of sacrifice. The burnt offering that we read about in Leviticus chapters 1 and chapter 6. Let's just look at a few things that the Bible says about that burnt offering. So we can understand the level of commitment that Paul is calling us to. In Leviticus, when it talks about the burnt offering, it says you take a a young bull, a sheep, a goat, a dove, or a pigeon, and they are to be without blemish, without defect. And that animal is to be slaughtered by the priest before the Lord. It's then to be skinned and cut into pieces. And then all of the pieces of the animal are to be arranged on the burning wood of the altar. And all of those pieces were to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night until morning. And the fire had to be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not ever go out until the entire offering was reduced to just ashes. That's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire. And we're told in Leviticus that that offering made an aroma pleasing to the Lord. 
So when Paul tells us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, he's talking about that kind of sacrifice. He's talking about a burnt offering sacrifice. See, Paul wants us to know that if we're truly seeking transformation, we have to offer God everything. We have to offer him the best we have. We have to offer him all we have. The best we have is placed in God's, at God's disposal. Nothing is held back. We don't have the luxury of offering God our fat and our kidneys and our livers and then hold the rest of our bodies back. Paul's telling us we give everything to God. When we have God's mercies in our view, clearly that demands a whole body, a whole life sacrifice. As I was going through this, one song kept coming into my mind, and I can't say it any better than the way that Isaac Watts said it a long time ago in an old hymn. I have to think he was probably reading Romans chapter 12 when he wrote this hymn. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. And all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And listen to what he says. He says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That sacrifice demands our souls, our lives, our all. Nothing should be held back. So Paul says we offer ourselves to God as a holy burnt sacrifice. Paul's not talking about getting close enough to the altar to singe our hair a little bit. He's not talking about getting close enough to the fire to kind of flush our faces a little bit. He's not talking about getting close enough to the altar to just get some smoke in our eyes. Now, holy burnt sacrifices are completely consumed. They're completely dedicated. They're completely devoted to God. Nothing is held back. Well, who in here likes the idea of being able to bring pleasure to God? How many of you in here like the notion of making God happy? You can raise your hand. It's okay. I hope that we all like that idea, that notion that that we as mere mortals could bring happiness to God. You know, we're in barbecue season now, and the second Wednesday of every month before our services on Wednesday night, you can find me between the gym and the building, and I'll be out there grilling hamburgers and hot dogs, lots of hamburgers and hot dogs. And as people come around the corner into the courtyard, I frequently hear some variation of Boy, that smells good. Or there's nothing like the smell of grilling meat. 
Or my mouth started watering as I pulled into the parking lot because I could smell that cooking meat. Most of us can relate to that. For most of us, grilling meat is a pleasing aroma. And one of the amazing gifts that we've been given is that when we present our lives with nothing held back as sacrifices to God, the amazing thing is that we smell good to God. We're a pleasing aroma to God. When we sacrifice ourselves in that way, we bring pleasure to God. See, there's nothing like the smell of a living sacrifice. But we also have to understand that there isn't such a thing as a sacrificing season. We don't present ourselves as sacrifices to God on the second Wednesday of every month during those warm months and then just call it good and assume that we're a pleasing aroma to God. When Paul tells us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, he's literally telling us to present a continual sacrifice. He's telling it has to be a constant killing that's going on. See, Paul's echoing the same demands made by Jesus Christ when he said this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. That's the level of commitment necessary to be a a holy, burnt, pleasing aroma sacrifice offered to God. So what do you think about that? I want you to listen again to some of the words and phrases that we've been using to describe what it means to be a living sacrifice. A burnt offering. Reduced to ashes. The best we have, all we have, nothing held back. It demands my soul, it demands my life, it demands my all. Consumed, completely dedicated, completely devoted. A continual sacrifice, a constant killing. Those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? And so in in light of that, in light of that kind of description, why would we? In fact, why would anyone choose to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God? It's a fair question, isn't it? It's a question that's asked frequently. Many of us have at least one person in our lives, a friend, maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe someone in our family. Someone who asks us that question. They don't ask us that question maliciously, but they truly don't understand. So they ask, why? Why choose to give up yourself to God? You say, it doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Why deny yourself? Why give up your Sundays? Why control your appetites? Why control your tongue? Why not just be the Lord of your own life? And probably most of us at some point in our lives have been that person asking why. 
And I'm pretty sure that some of us are still asking why. Why choose to be a sacrifice to God instead of choosing to be your own God? And Paul gives us the answer to that question when he says, in the view of God's mercy, offer yourself as sacrifice to God. In view of God's mercy. You see, what seems irrational, what seems illogical, is revealed as completely rational, as completely logical when it's viewed when it's viewed in the light of the cross. And that's the way that that three-legged stool works. See, when we know God, and when we know what he has done for us, we worship him and we praise him for who he is and for what he has done. And when we know God, and when we know what he has done for us, we know that placing ourselves in his hands to transform us is the most rational decision we can ever make. If we have a clear view of God's mercy and love as shown on the cross, anything less than a complete sacrifice of ourselves is completely irrational. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if Jesus giving himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for you doesn't move you to give up yourself as a sacrifice to him, then I have to question, do we really grasp the gospel And so you might ask, well, how do we do that? How do we make that kind of sacrifice? How do we become that kind of sacrifice? How do we go about sacrificing ourselves? We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But Paul tells us here that the first thing that we have to do is we have to get over ourselves. To sacrifice yourself, you have to get over yourself. See, sacrifices give up control. All control. Sacrifices hand themselves over. They place their destiny in the hands of another. And that only makes sense if you can trust those hands. And we can trust those hands. Because as sacrifices, we place ourselves in the hands of Jesus Christ. We place ourselves in the hands of the great high priest for him to transform us. So a metamorphosis can take place. So we can be transfigured into something that we weren't before. So we can be transformed inside out by the renewing of our minds. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When he said, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, when we offer ourselves as as sacrifices, the, the Lord does his transforming work in us. God's word and God's spirit work in us to transform us and renew us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We can trust his pierced hands to transform us. 
And when we give ourselves up to him, and when we place our lives under his power and under his control, it's then and it's only then that our thoughts, our desires, our motivations are transformed and reoriented from seeking to conform to the pattern of this evil world to instead seeking after God's will. Not our will, but his be done. And an amazing thing happens when we do that, when we place ourselves in the hands of Jesus Christ. It's then and it's only then that we discover that being a burnt offering, being reduced to ashes, giving the best we have and all we have, we discover that holding nothing back, that having our soul and our life and our all demanded of us, we find that being consumed and completely dedicated and completely devoted We find that continually sacrificing and constantly killing, we find that when that's done in the hands of the great high priest, we discover that being a living sacrifice is really, truly living. See, when we truly live, we're living truly. And when we live truly, we're truly living. When we live true to who God is, has called us to be, then he frees us to live truly according to his will. And I'm here to tell you that's the good life. That's the pleasing life. That's the perfect life, a life lived in the hands of Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you transform us. We ask that you renew us. Father, we ask that you make us over more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to get over ourselves, to hold nothing back, to give you our lives, our souls, our all. Father, help us to trust in the hands that were pierced to transform us into who you would have us be. Father, that's our prayer in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, as we end, I want to give you our uncomfortable challenge for the week. This is uncomfortable challenge number 21, and this is a praying challenge. Using the Psalms that you'll see listed um, on the screen, each day this week, pray for God's renewal and transformation in your life. And use those Psalms to help you do it. Um, Take a moment and write those down, pull out your phone and take a picture, but also know that every week, um, every morning this week, I'll be sending out an email that has those on there as well. So pray for God's transformation in your life. Pray for his renewal in your life. Put your hands in the hands of the great high priest and trust that you will be transformed. We're going to end our time together by singing a song. And this is a song where we're going to ask God to work powerfully on us to bring renewal and transformation in our lives. Let's stand. Let's sing together.